Hey guys, as you probably know, Instride is brought to you by Ride IQ. And instead of telling you about Ride IQ, I'm going to read an excerpt from a recent review in the App Store. The headline is Solo Game Changer. It's five stars. It says, not only do each of my rides have more consistency, but the noticeable improvement in both myself and my horses is incredible. I'm in constant awe at the people in this community and the unending support that is given to members from coaches. Yes, you read that correctly. The coaches are very much involved in the day-to-day of the private community that comes along with the app. Whether answering questions, giving feedback, or celebrating wins, there's always someone jumping in when the need arrives. This review continues on, but I know you want to get to today's episode. So if you haven't tried Ride IQ yet, there's a two week totally risk free free trial. We would love to have you give it a go and you get access to everything that Ride IQ offers. Just head to ride IQ.com to sign up and enjoy the episode. On today's episode of In Stride, Sinead talks to founder and podcast host Shay McMaster. Shay studied exercise science at Hastings College before starting his business, Enlightened Athlete. Enlightened Athlete provides one on one training and classes in yoga, breath work, sports performance, jujitsu, and nutrition. Shay also has a podcast called Get Uncomfortable, where he and his guests discuss using obstacles and adversity as an advantage. The podcast also covers different ways to improve one's mental health, physical health, and mindset, all of which are topics of conversation with Sinead today as well. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. I am really, really excited to have Shay McMaster join us today, a fellow podcaster. Shay hosts the podcast Get Uncomfortable. And we were, I actually, we have a mutual friend who directed me over to your podcast. And I looked at all the titles and I felt like I was, it was Christmas. I didn't know where to start. <laughs> like, where do we dive in? And so I went all the way down to number one and started at the first one. And I am crunching through. But why don't we start by you just telling us a little bit about you and how you got into all this crazy stuff that you do? <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on. My name's Shay McMaster, and I ran a gym in Hastings, Nebraska, the middle of the country. Um, it was really more of like a personal training studio. It started out as like group classes, and then COVID happened, and people were like really leery of coming into the gym in a group class setting. And I really enjoy doing one-on-one personal training more anyway, because I get to connect with the people on a deeper level. And uh, so we transitioned basically only to one-on-one. And then we did a little bit of jujitsu and and wrestling as well. But um, so I started the gym about almost seven years ago. And then I ran the gym by myself for seven years and built it up from nothing. I actually started in an insulated, uh, uninsulated garage in the middle of winter in Nebraska. I cannot believe people showed up like they messaged me and they came to the gym, which was my garage. And I was like, man, these people probably think they're going to get murdered, axe murdered in the uh, in the garage here. But that's how it started. And then I got hooked up with a baseball team in town. And I was like, well, I can't fit 35 uh, college baseball players in my garage. So we had to shop for a spot. Um, And when we shopped for the spot, I started doing demo. I started painting and then. The day I was going to sign the lease, the whole thing fell apart. Oh, my God. (laughs) 
it was a blessing in disguise actually in the long run but so that fell apart and then i was like well we got to find somewhere because i have the baseball team coming in two days so (laughs) we found another spot like literally a day later they were not ready to lease i convinced them to let me sign a lease for two years they only made me do two years which was cool in the beginning and i moved all the flooring over and i bought this like six thousand dollar rubber mat it was super expensive shaped for the previous space but it it lined up perfectly i just had to make a few cuts for the new space it like Mm -hmm. totally worked out it was like meant to be yeah and then i ran the gym uh for almost seven years and it went great like made some really really cool connections with people uh learned a lot about myself as i'm sure you know like you get into any type of business or any type of growth thing that's pushing you you learn so much about yourself i've got two kids i have a one-year-old and a four-year-old married my high school sweetheart which is crazy mm-hmm. um and it's going great yeah that's so we just moved to florida too just so everybody knows so i just relocated this is like day four for me in florida so i cannot believe you actually showed up for this thing day four in a new place with all you have going on so we so appreciate it so how did how did you get into the personal training journey and i feel like that word doesn't after listening to so many of your podcasts i feel like that doesn't really un- encompass all that you do but how did you start down that path yeah i actually hate the term personal training yeah it feels I, like it belittles i I didn't yeah <laughs> yeah and and it's like people say it you know because that's what people know and that's mm-hmm. fine like that doesn't bother me at all but it's just like a personal thing where i'm like anybody and their dog can get a personal training certification mm-hmm. and do it and do it poorly right i was really careful when i started the gym I didn't hire anybody for a long time because I did not want just anybody in the gym. I had a lot of people come and ask me for a job and interview and say this. And I would talk to them. I'm like, look, you're not the right fit. We have a very specific thing. We tackle the mental side of things as well. It's more like life coaching almost that exercise is the springboard for that. So the way I got into it was I, uh, my mother committed suicide when I was 15 and, uh, I got to take a drink. Sorry. So I lost my mom, and really the only thing that helped me get through that was exercise. I started exercising. So my dad used to work out a lot. We had a weight room in the basement, and then we moved it out to the garage. It was a dungeon. It was dirty, spider webs everywhere. Everything was rusty, but I started lifting a lot, and I noticed I started to feel better when I would lift. And then I got into the nutrition side of things, and I felt even better. I had asthma as a kid. I had really bad allergies. I was skinny fat. I had zero athletic ability, like extremely uncoordinated. It was crazy. So I started lifting, started eating better. I loved it. I started living that lifestyle. Then my friends were like, what are you doing? Like, Because I started doing better in sports, right? My performance went up. I was dealing with my anxiety and depression in a different way. Mm. And so then I was like, maybe I can start like telling people about this. So I just started talking to my friends and family, help them lose weight, help them get in shape. And then I was like, I don't think I want to do anything else. Like, I don't think there's anything else that I was meant to do because it just clicked for me. Even in college, when I was taking like A and P one and two, people were failing the class and I didn't even have to study. It just, it just makes sense for me. It's like what my brain does. And so I just started talking to people about it. I got an internship at a gym. It was a CrossFit gym, a local CrossFit gym for college. And that was like really my first venture into actually coaching people that were not my friends. And uh, it went great. I loved it. I can see biomechanics. I can see how people move. I can fix things easily. 
I just see it. Like when I see people walking out on the street, I'm watching their gait pattern. I'm like, oh, they're pronating. Like I could fix that. Oh, their knees are going valgus. I could fix that. I just <laughs> see broken people and I can fix you. <laughs> and uh, that's how I got into it. And I just, I loved it. I loved the environment of the gym. I felt at home. I love working out. It like it just levels up every area of my life. My mental, my physical, my sleep is better. My my mood is better. So I got into that. And then I started, uh, I moved to Omaha, which is the biggest city in Nebraska, which is still not very big. And I started working with some professional athletes and coaches, and uh, they were very high-level coaches. They all had master's degrees. They were athletic trainers, certified strength conditioning specialists. And uh, I started doing personal training, so one-on-one with group classes. And we were doing group classes, like 50 to 60 people, sometimes more. And you're leading that group of people through very complex movements. It's a very loud environment, lots of things going on. And I just like, I love that high energy, high pace stuff. That's how my brain works. I feel really uh, like alive when it's like, okay, there's a lot of stress coming, uh, but let's, let's get through it and move through it. So that's how I got into it. And then I, uh, I realized like, I can do this in a different way because I also got into meditation. I got into spirituality. I got into emotional regulation, nervous system, all that stuff, stress mitigation. And I was like, I can take a different path. And instead of just having people come in and being a clipboard coach, like, okay, do this many squats. Okay, do this many burpees. It's like, hey, how are you actually feeling? What's going on in your life today? I can tell that you're not in it. Maybe we don't need to work out. Maybe we need to do a 10-minute meditation and some breath work to get you recentered and set. And a lot of times people just ended up crying, talking and crying for an hour. So it wasn't even training all the time. It was like, what am I doing? This is so different. And uh, I love it. Like I love being able to connect with people on a deeper level and actually help them transform. So when they leave the gym, when they're done working with me, they're a different person and their lives are better, not just fitter and healthier, like mentally and emotionally, they are more whole. There is so much there. <laughs> I was scribbling as you were going. Is that where you ended up I know, I, I mean, I'm interested in the the title, the Get Uncomfortable, but when you write about the enlightened athlete, I mean, is that where that kind of came from, that whole package? Yeah, yeah, I really got into uh, Buddhism for a while. Just kind of like the Eastern philosophies, I started researching those. And uh, enlightenment really is like the ultimate goal in, in Buddhism and Hinduism and, and these Eastern philosophies. And it's like a sense of, ultimate peace right mm -hmm. everything is at peace and you can understand that everything is happening for a reason even the bad stuff right mm -hmm. there's a reason for everything and uh when i was thinking about naming the business i was like what i don't want it to just be you know chase gym like it's just like everything else you know i yeah. just so i was like i'm gonna do both i'm gonna tackle the mental i'm gonna tackle the physical and we're gonna do this together because they're not separate you know a lot of people like to treat them separately you have to go to a psychologist for this, but you have to go to a doctor for that. And they're not connected at all. And that's like really the way Western society is set up and why I think we have such a problem with like obesity and anxiety and chronic disease. It's like, it's an epidemic for sure because we're not treating the body as a unit. And that's what I wanted to do. So that's where the name came from. I love that. We have, um, we have a institute, the Chi Institute down the road that we use for a lot of our veterinary work. So we use Eastern, Western, whatever works. We kind of combine the, the thing. And uh, Dr. Langlois, uh, one of our guys that came in and, that, and was doing a lot of work with the horses, that's a conversation we had with him. It's like, do you think there'll ever be a point where you just, you don't say Eastern, Western medicine? It's just 
all all encompass one balanced thing. And, you know, looking at it from that side, that there's there's abundance or a deficiency, like you're always just trying to find the balance. And it was wild because I came into I had a, a horse come in. I mean, it was probably, I don't know, six or seven years ago, honestly, and we couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. And I and I had every mainstream top performance vet here. And I mean, the horse was dying literally in front of us. And it came as I, I mean, it was just wild. And, and we ended up going over to, to the Chi Institute. And that really opened my eyes to so many other just ways of thinking that there, you know, that there, there's an energy flow problem here. There's a shutdown. There's an emotional element to this. That's more than just, just treating the wound basically. And that got me kind of down a road of, well, if this is working for horses, then I ended up going and seeing uh, the acupuncturist that Dr. Langwall recommended that he used for himself personally. And then it kind of got the spiraling effect. And I, more and more, I started to see in horse and human, the people I was coaching so much trauma, so much trauma, so many trauma responses, so much fear responses, so much hard, ineffective work because they were avoiding something instead of working through something. And funny listening to you talk about some of, I, I, I'm so curious because it seems that you set this up in a real, really deliberate way, but the amount of times that you end up, or I'd end up teaching and you go and you sit under a tree and you have a 45 minute conversation about nothing to do with horses because it's just not going to work. And the horse isn't doing the thing because he knows something's wrong with you. <laughs> you know, like he's yeah. not going to perform that way. So when you when you kind of started to look at your business model and thought I can really do this however I want I can set this up and and you know use my talent or what I can see how did you structure that how did you first of all how did you realize that you could see things that other people weren't finding obvious everything from somebody not being whole to them walking crooked <laughs> Yeah I uh well it was just like even in the weight room in high school, I could uh, see when people were squatting, I would just tell them like, hey, you just need to adjust your feet a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I don't know how I got that ability. But then I did dive really deep. And I, I still have uh, like biomechanics textbooks, like graduate level biomechanics textbooks that I just read, you mm -hmm. know, like I just sit down and read it because I'm interested. Like, hey, so-and-so said they have this going on. I better dive into it and see what it is. Like, I just figured that out. And then uh, so my wife, is actually a therapist. She's a licensed mental health practitioner. And I always joke that like I was her first project. I was her first client <laughs> unwittingly. And uh, she has helped me a lot on the other side, the, the like mental and emotional side. So what she was going through with school at the same time I was going through school, I mean, we would just talk all the time and I would watch a lot of the trainings that she had and I still do this. And uh, we would just talk a lot. And I started to figure out like, okay, what's motivational interviewing? What's that like? How could that play a role in my business? Like my intake, when I take somebody in, it's not like, hey, do you have, do you get lightheaded? Do you get dizzy? That's on the waiver. But when I'm sitting down talking to you, I want to know like, what is it that drives you? Why did you come see me? What's the real reason? And you have to keep asking like, well, why? Well, why? Well, why? You know, like the five W's, you keep going down the path. And you get people to tell you what they actually need, what they actually want to say. And I just sit there and listen a lot. You know, I just let them talk. And they tell you what they want. They tell you what they need. They tell you what they want first, and then they tell you what they need if you keep listening. So I just found out, like, if I just shut up sometimes, that's, like, the best tactic. Especially in sales. They say this in sales training all the time. Like, present the offer, present what you have, and then shut up. 
And then they'll either talk themselves into it or out of it. And if they talk mm -hmm. themselves out of it, you go into like, well, you told me that you want to be around for your kids, right? You want to be able to pick your kids up and play with them outside. And right now you can't because you get winded, your back hurts, your knees hurt. We can solve that issue, but it's going to take you and me working together. And that just reminds them and gives them permission to like invest in themselves, mm -hmm. right? Like, because you're going to get something out of this. If you, if you work with a trainer, if you work with somebody who is knowledgeable in any field, you're going to get something out of it. Like you came here for a reason. So I'm not going to let you, I'm not going to let the fear or the doubt talk you out of getting better. Mm -hmm. And my wife really helped me with figuring out how to get to people's like real motivations. And uh, yeah, I don't know with the, the mechanical, the biomechanical stuff, how mm. I was able to figure that out, but it just clicked in my brain. Like it just mm. makes sense. And I don't have a good way to explain that. <laughs> That's okay. That is, is so wild. I, it would be so interesting to be a fly on the wall in those initial interviews. I bet, do you ever have people that come in for that conversation and they don't even know what they need? And at the end of it, it's kind of, yeah. I would imagine all the time they, they don't they don't even know what they want they just know like what they've been doing doesn't feel good and I try to help them pinpoint maybe why things aren't going well or why they don't feel good and mm -hmm. you really have to meet people where they are that's the other thing that I found out in the journey you can't make people change they have to be like ready to do it on their own mm -hmm. and I'm just a facilitator I just guide them through the process of getting what they want. Mm -hmm. So interesting. Um, one of the, I can't remember which one I was listening to, but it was really what stood out in my head was that I think it was the PJ Nestler one maybe. And um, he, you guys were talking about discomfort and he was kind of saying most people look at discomfort as a cue to stop what they're doing. And I thought that was such an interesting statement. Because listening to you speak right now, people would be like, this guy should call his podcast Zen Happiness and let's chat, not <laughs> like get uncomfortable. And then that also leads, I've been, li I listened to uh, Greg Everett's twice. I thought that was so good um, and his redefining toughness. But do you like, can you talk about that a little bit, the uncomfort, like the discomfort and how that helps tie into all of this? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, people kind of get confused with the name, I think, sometimes, because typically uncomfortable is a, it's viewed as a bad thing, right? But really, there's this book called The Comfort Crisis. Uh, Michael Easter wrote it. Mm -hmm. He talks about, like, the reason we are where we are today is because we are always seeking comfort. We're always seeking the path of least resistance. And really, if you look at, like, psychological research, there's a book I'm reading right now called Flow. It talks about people do best when they are pushed when they are challenged, when they are doing something that stretches their limits a little bit, right? That's how we grow. It gives our brain a sense of control and progress and purpose. And that's where we really thrive. So the whole like idea behind getting uncomfortable is all of the good things that you want in life are going to come on the other side of discomfort. If you stay in comfort, you it's really easy to be comfortable right? It's really easy to stay inside all the time, to never work out, to eat the chips, to whatever, never do an ice bath. That's really easy. But that is also leaving a lot of want in your brain for more, right? Your, your brain is like searching for like, hey, what's the next thing? Hey, how can we push past this? Or you never feel that sense of accomplishment. And I think that brings people a lot of peace when you can feel like 
hey, I just did something I did not think I could do. Like when I put somebody in the ice bath, yes, it's very uncomfortable, but it's not dangerous. That's the other thing that people like, hey, if I'm in pain, if I break my arm, is that great? No, like, no, that's not great. Like, that's silly. But safe, uh, safe risk. Like, I'm going to put you in an ice bath. It's very uncomfortable, but I'm going to coach you through this and you're going to be able to control your breath and downregulate your nervous system and really find zen in this very noxious stimulus of ice cold water. And when you get out, you're going to, one, feel really physiologically good, but also you're going to have a better sense of self and a better sense of control after you get out of that. You recognized, okay, I was met with a, an extreme stressor. You can't breathe, right? You can't catch your breath in the ice bath. You brought it back down. You controlled it, and you conquered the ice bath. When you get out of that, you're like, well, shit. If I can control the ice bath, then what else can I control in my life? How else could I control my responses in a stressful meeting or in a presentation or with my kids? If I'm going to lose my mind at home with the children, maybe I could just take a couple deep breaths and control my nervous system because I did that. So what else can I do? Like That's the whole idea behind get uncomfortable. And it also goes into having a conversation that maybe you don't want to have with somebody. It's something you've been avoiding, something you don't want to say to somebody. It, it makes you feel uncomfortable. You know it's going to make them feel weird. But after you have the conversation, usually things go smoother, right? You can lay it all out and you have that conversation. You make that call. You send the email. You feel better after. But that is uncomfortable having to take that first step. But that's the whole goal. It's like let's take that first step into discomfort, work through it instead of avoiding it. And then you're going to feel better. Just like you said with you're having conversations with somebody because the horse isn't doing because they know they know something's wrong. You know that the person's not reacting properly to your cues. We have to talk about like, what are you avoiding? And you can kind of start to work, chip away at that and come out on the other side a lot better off. That's the whole concept behind like getting uncomfortable for me. Do you ever find that you come across people? I know in our industry, I feel like. I've come across, and, and certainly I, I have been this person, that instead of using discomfort as something to push me to be better, I almost use it as like an excuse or it's, it's I'm working really hard and I'm almost like, like almost being a bit of a martyr about it here. I'm almost overdoing, doing too much, working too hard. And then I've kind of almost got pride in how much harder I'm working than anybody else. And then that quickly goes into like bitter about how much more. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, where's the balance in discomfort? Yeah, that's a good question. I do the same thing. I almost use it as uh, I'll, I'll have these like running thoughts. Sometimes this is something I dealt with a lot was like, I'm not good enough. Right. That's a very common one for me. I'm not doing enough. I need to work harder. And I almost use it as a punishment. I'm like, I'm going to keep going harder until I can't see straight. My legs don't work anymore. I, I'm so stressed out. I don't sleep anymore. I'm not hungry. Like I take it too far for sure. But there's a balance in that you, you're doing, it's changing your language and your perspective around doing it. Not as, I think for me, it's like coming from a place of lack, right? When I'm, when I'm doing that, it's that I'm not doing enough. I am not enough. You have to switch it to, I'm doing this thing to get better to learn a lesson. And there is a balance between you can't just keep working forever with no rest, right? You have to have downtime. So being able to find the balance between work, 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 but you also have to have some down regulation. 
meditation, reading a book, prayer, float tanks, getting in a sauna, doing yoga. Like you have to also do those other things. And this plays right into get uncomfortable because it sounds like for you and definitely for me, hard work is easy, right? That's kind of like our default mode is I'm just going to do more, right? So for me, actually getting uncomfortable is not doing a hard workout. It's sitting down and doing 30 minutes of meditation, 30 minutes of breath work, doing a yoga class. That is uncomfortable for me because my default is go, 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 go. It's different for everybody. So the get uncomfortable part is like, okay, I have to stop and slow down now and just go sit outside for an hour mm-hmm. and relax, right? But that's, it takes a lot of self-awareness. You have to develop a lot of self-awareness when you're doing this, but get uncomfortable sounds like I have to do an ice bath. I have to do a workout. I have to do something hard. I have to go climb a mountain. But for me, really, it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. The get uncomfortable part is the stopping and the slowing down for me. So I recognize that I have to go into that side of it to downregulate myself. Otherwise, I will burn out. So mm-hmm. that's, it's still getting uncomfortable. It just looks different than most people would assume. Yeah, that is really interesting and great. Yeah, because it's, yeah, when you talk about meditating or sitting still or relaxing outside, I'm like, no, that sounds awful. If I know. <laughs> Why would we do that when we could be getting so much done? <laughs> so in, in talking about that, I, I also, things are changing so quickly and there's so much more awareness around mental health and recovery and fitness and nutrition and sleep and everything that you need. But it also, you know, on the other side of it, we have a lot of young people coming. Our, like I'm sure in your industry, it's, it's hard like to be at a certain level all the time. It, it just takes a lot of work. It's a lot of hours. It's just a super commitment. If you want to do it at a certain level, it's a super commitment. And then we'll have kind of what would be considered interns or working students or young people come through and they've got these goals over here, but there is so much use of the words, I'm burnt out, uh, my anxiety, I've got migraines, I've got this, I've got that. And my initial reaction is like, toughen up buttercup and but then you know, i spent a little I, have you read the um book stolen focus uh it's actually in my audible uh library queued up i haven't read it yet though super interesting and it kind of it it really shines some light on kind of how people are coming through how younger people are coming through and middle-aged and older with everything with social media and being ter- hooked in all the time and always having this charge so that there is a higher level of burnout, anxiety, stress, migraines, all the things that you were talking about. It sounds like in chronic disease, that type of thing. How do you have that conversation with kind of this younger generation of how to overcome those things without necessarily so much medication, so much? I mean, I, I love talk therapy. I love so many different avenues, but it seems again, like you can go so far that way that nothing's actually happening. That's productive other than just a loop of the same thing all the time and a fear of doing anything, you know, like almost just this like crippling fear of trying anything that would be stressful. And that's kind of a not, that's not a direct question, but it's something to talk to, I would think. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, for sure. When that stuff is happening, like the first thing, like if I have a client that comes in and is saying similar things to that, like they feel like they just can't get anything done. They're just stressed out. They're burnt out. And they're telling me all the reasons why things aren't working, but then they tell me why they can't get more sleep. They tell me why they couldn't change their diet, like cut out some pop, cut out some fast food, like start small. I just ask them, 
how's that working for you? And I just keep asking that question. Like, how is that working for you? Well, it's not. Okay, well, why? You know, why is that not working for you? And what are you going to do about it? What could we do? What is one thing that you feel like on a scale of one to 10, 10 being like, hell yes, super easy. What's one thing that you could do right now or tomorrow, today, whatever, that you could do to change where you're at and move in the right direction? One thing. Pick one thing. Everybody has a list of 10 things they think they want to do. Pick one. You can't do any of them right now. You're doing none of them. So pick one. And then we'll reassess if you add that thing in, that habit, or cut something out. Maybe you shut off the phone for two hours a day, right? Come back in a week. How's that working for you? Right? That's always what I come back to. Like It's just teaching people to take inventory of what they're doing and how they're feeling. And it's you can't really change behavior unless you get people aware of what they're doing. So many people don't recognize the actions that they take every day are what's gotten them to where they are right now. They just completely disconnect from that. And it sounds so silly to say that, but I talk to so many people, they're like, I hate my body. Like, well, did you always hate your body? Did you always feel like you have no control over your life? Or was it like a slow build over the last five years because of your actions every day led you to this point? And what are you doing? Like, what did you have for lunch today? I'll ask people that all the time. Well, I went to Amigos, like, which is a fast food restaurant. Like, well, don't do that. Okay. Stop doing that. And then we can say, how's that working for you? Cook at home once this week. Okay. Start to build the habit. Organize your kitchen. Like, start really small. Pick one thing and figure that out. So, if somebody is burnt out and somebody is stressed out, okay, let's look at what you're doing on a daily basis. Are you staying up till 1 a.m. on your phone, watching TV, watching Netflix? Are you avoiding doing the work that you need to be doing? Are you not taking the rest? Are you not drinking water? Like whatever it is, like let's go through your day and figure out what it is that you're doing because it's a natural response, uh, anxiety, stress, feeling burnt out. That is a natural bodily response to being stressed out physiologically, right? So I think it all... It, it can be handled in the body, right? Not everything starts in the body. A lot of times it's the mind that gets overworking, gets people stressed out, but you do have a physiological response to that. There's physiological things that happen in the body. Pupils dilate, blood pressure goes up, heart rate increases, right? Tension in the body, people get really, really tense. So I think we can take back control, conscious control of like the breath and maybe do a quick body scan. Like where are you holding tension? Some people grit their teeth, it's in their, in their jaw. Some people, their shoulders get up. They squeeze their fists. Like, let's do a quick body scan. It takes 10 seconds. Where are you holding tension? Okay, let that tension go, and let's reassess. Like, it's try something, reassess. That's kind of like my process with it. And just get people aware that they do have the ability to control what's going on. They can stop the cycle. They can intercept either the physiological or the psychological stress themselves. They have the power. It's an inside job. And once you get people to recognize that they have that control and that power, it gives them a sense of control over what's going on in their life. So they have less anxiety. They have less burnout because they know, I got this. It doesn't happen immediately. It's like you have to remind them a little bit, but you take them through that process of like on uh, 105 of my episode or my podcast, Dave Wood was on and he broke down the five steps to stress mitigation. And I'll run through them here real quick for you. Pull up my notes. So the five steps, it's embrace the stress and pressure, like literally recognize that it's happening. Don't avoid it. Don't run from it. Like, hey, I'm really burnt out. 
okay, you've acknowledged it and then bring that in and recognize that it's happening. Two, you're going to change the language. So stop saying, I can't handle this. Stop saying, I'm burnt out. I'm stressed out. This is terrible for me. I can't handle this. Maybe switch the language to like, hey, what lesson could I learn here? There's a valuable opportunity to grow in this stressful environment. Number three is you shift your perspective. So instead of like, oh my God, I don't want to go to work today. Like I can't handle it. It's too stressful. You, you just say like, okay, I can, I can figure this out. Like I've done other things hard in my life. I know I can handle this. There's, this is actually something that I wanted. You know, a lot of times people forget like, hey, I wanted this opportunity. So you shift your perspective. Number four is you take conscious control of your breath because the breath is what regulates your nervous system. Like if you stop breathing, you die, which is kind of a given, but people don't think about it. So your breath is actually what controls the experience. So you take conscious control of your breath. And then number five, like I talked about, you do a body scan and you find out where you're holding that tension in your body and you can start to release that. So you're literally working through all the systems of the body. You're taking control of the mental, you're taking control of the physical, you're changing your breath. And you just practice those five steps. And that usually can get people out of either acute stress, you know, if it's like in the exact moment, like we just did an elk hunt and uh, we actually got stalked by a mountain lion on the mountain in the dark. It was extremely terrifying. I'm going to be honest with you. It was a big mountain lion. But in the moment, I've, I've practiced this so many times in an ice bath. I've practiced this so many times in jujitsu. I've practiced this so many times in my life. It was like, okay, where are we at? What are we doing? Where's the cliff? Don't fall off the cliff. It's dark. Okay, we have to throw rocks. We can't run away. But immediately go into like, okay, I'm going to go through the steps. I'm going to stay calm. I'm going to keep my wits about me so I don't get hurt. You just go right into that. And it's almost automatic when you practice it. And that's like, that's why I like the ice bath so much because I use it and I got this from Dave. You use it as a tool, not only like, it's not just anti-inflammatory, you use it as a tool to intercept the stress, right? And you tell yourself, I know that this is good for me. I know that I'm gonna handle this, uh, this is okay. You get in, you visualize it before you get in, you visualize yourself staying calm, you immediately take control of your breath, as soon as you get up into your neck, you know, it takes your breath away. So you bring back control in the moment. And I can get to literally a meditative state in about 15 seconds in an ice bath now, just because I practiced it. And that, that directly related to the mountain lion experience. I was able to stay calm, not get hurt, make sure my friends weren't hurt and get away safely. I didn't freak out. And it, like, that's a direct result of practicing that skill. That's so interesting. Just when you were speaking, I was thinking about it's like like we're programmed for short term stress. We're fine with that, but it's like the long term stuff we're not good at. So it's like when you get to a point where you've been stressed for so long, you avoid being stressed. And so then you don't have and when you're in that stress mode, it's hard to think, how do I handle this rationally and logically? Because you're too stressed out to do it. And yeah. so if you can pre-program away and practice it, it's like with your with the ice bath, things like that. To, to almost bring that stress in so you can practice negating it over and over. I mean, we do that. We, we honestly, we do that with very, very often with horses that have problems regulating their adrenaline. And then we get a lot of, my husband and I do a lot of work with horses that come in and, and most of the time it's got very little to do with training them. It's just helping them regulate their nervous system because they're just in fight or flight 24 seven and they can't calm themselves down. And we get them to, we teach them tools before 
they're, they're before their and and uh, before their adrenaline comes in, and then we start to bring in levels of adrenaline, so we can we can help them regulate, and then they can self-regulate, and then then after all of that sort of stuff, then we can start teaching training. But until they're in a regulated state, there's no point, you know. And that's I just never thought about that with the ice baths. I've I've I have not done that myself, but I've heard so many things, and on both sides of it, right? And I'm like, well, it'd be good for my metabolism, but I don't know if I'm ready to do that for my metabolism. <laughs> but, but that sounds more inspiring <laughs> right. for that. It's super interesting. Hi, everyone. I wanted to take this opportunity to give you some inside information on what makes Tota Saddles different. This new Tota Freedom Jump Line, which we were lucky enough to help design, is contoured away from the shoulder and the shoulder muscle, not only to allow new freedom of movement, but it encourages a more uphill balance and, an, and effortless comfort for the horse. The new balance puts the rider in harmony in a connected and powerful way. One more amazing perk of this saddle is that it has a metal tree, meaning you can fit it to any horse you have now and any horse that enters your barn in the future. At Copperline, we pride ourselves in a progressive horse first approach. And when we met Charlie and learned that his TOTA comfort system was founded on an understanding of the horse's biomechanics, maximizing performance and the total comfort of the horse, we knew we had to work with this team. Please check out the Dressage Connection or follow the Tota Comfort System on Facebook or Instagram. Like many guests on this podcast, one of Tick and my main motivators is to reach our full potential in high-performance horse sports. Our belief and strategies are rooted in horse behavior and exploring what's possible in the human and horse relationship. This journey is not possible without our community. We are excited to announce a few seats at the main table, as well as an easy access point to Copperline Farm and horse ownership. Check out the Ace Syndicate and the Journey Syndicate at CopperlineEquestrian.com. Find out about the horses these syndicates own, the difference between A and B shares, and how you can experience horse sport as part of our team here at Copperline. And if you'd like to listen to In Stride ad-free, please head on over and sign up to be a member at Ride IQ. And now back to the podcast. Yeah, it's a big ask to uh, get in ice cold water for your metabolism. I think. Yeah, I was like, meh. <laughs> but for like high mental performance and clarity, you know, and stress mitigation, really like acute stress, like you talked about, that's, uh, that's normal, right? That's actually a good thing. We have to get stuff done every day. And if there is a danger, you need that physiological response of the stress to get away, the fight or flight, right? We need that. But it gets into uncontrolled stress and chronic stress when we don't have the tools to deal with it and be able to downregulate. And just those five steps, like being able to work that into your life. I mean, he was a, Dave was a paramedic, like trauma, like crazy trauma. He's like, I saw everything you could see happen to a human body, the worst stuff. And he was just recognizing like his coworkers and himself were burnt out where, you know, that's a very common field where people get sick of it. It's very, that's a very tough field. So he started doing these things and he's like, I was better able to deal with the agitation. I was better able to deal with the chaos. I had a better life. My mental attitude was better. So taking it from controlled stress, or if it's uncontrolled stress, you want to get it to controlled stress and controlled stress only happens inside. You get to dictate what your response is instead of just being reactive to everything all the time, which most people are, that's what leads to burnout. That's what leads to anxiety is not having a sense of control, right? That's why we get like, 
I don't know what's happening and I don't know what to do because you have you feel like you have no control over the situation. If you recognize that it's an inside job and I can handle this because I have the tools and the steps necessary to do it, which are not talked about, which are not taught in schools for some reason. Like I was never taught any of this, how to deal with stress. Luckily, there's the internet now and we can, we can find that and have conversations like this, right? Once you have that, I think the sense of control greatly increases and the level of burnout and anxiety greatly decreases because you're like, I am in control of this situation. And you can recognize and say, this opportunity is good for me. You know, instead of saying like, I'm so stressed out by this and I can't handle this, you can say, I wanted this. This is an opportunity to grow and learn. This is going to benefit me in the long term. And you consciously change your mindset about it. You're going to immediately feel better about it, right? And it takes practice, but reminding yourself that you can do it is the important thing for me. Can you talk a little bit, and I know this is like books and podcasts and lectures, but a little bit about the breath work and how you integrate that into your daily life as well as your coaching life? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell you a little story about like how I got into it for sure. Um, and I think it'll, it'll be pretty relevant. So like I lost my mom, went through all that stress, got kicked out of the house when I was 19. Just like, okay, see you later. Get on your own. Good luck. And I was always in a state of fight or flight, and I didn't even know it. I just had adapted to being in a high-stress chaos environment, no stability, nothing, and I just made it work. You know, the body is extremely adaptable. Like when I see people loading their carts up at the grocery store with nothing but sugar and pop, it's like, how are these people not dropping over dead? I just, I'm shocked. It's like, oh, the human body is very adaptable, which is good and bad because it allows you to work on faulty mechanics. Uh, faulty processes. It's not optimal, right? But the body will get through it. So it adapted and I got through it. But it just, over the last probably like maybe three or four years, I started having these terrible headaches, these tension migraines. And it started out as like, okay, a little headache. I'd wake up in the morning. It's something about like in the position that I'm in when I'm sleeping. I would wake up in the morning and it just got worse and worse and worse to the point where I would get like physically ill. I'd be throwing up. I couldn't see straight. I couldn't drive. I was super sensitive to light. And I mean, I was still working out. I was drinking water. I was eating healthy. And I'm like, I don't know what's happening. I think I'm dying. Maybe I have a brain tumor or something. So I got MRIs. Um, I was going to the chiropractor. I was going to physical therapy. I was like trying to outsource everything as an external fix, right? Like these people are going to fix me. The MRI came back totally clear. They're like, there's nothing wrong in your neck. You don't have anything in your brain. Like you're healthy. Okay. So I go to physical therapy and they're doing dry needling on my neck and they're doing all this soft tissue work and it would feel better for a day or two and it'd go right back to completely locked up again. I even asked them, why is this going back? Like, shouldn't this stick longer? And they're like, well, yeah, it should. We don't really know why that's happening. And then um, really what happened is I woke up one day and I started to think like, I don't know how much longer I can do this. I woke up with a terrible headache and I was like, look, if this keeps happening, I don't know how long I can do this for. This is not sustainable. And I woke up and I was just being really quiet. And I was like, I'm just going to meditate. Like, I'm just going to try to breathe and slow my brain down. And a word popped into my head while I was laying in bed. This was like 4.30 in the morning. It just wakes me up out of sleep. And the word said it was myalgia, which is muscle pain, right? That's all myalgia is. So I was like, I better look this up. And I looked it up and I kind of looked uh, like WebMD looked it up in my textbooks and it's like myalgia chronic muscle pain is not 
always related to an acute injury, which is what I thought it was because I had a terrible car crash where I like had bad whiplash. But it's more related often to like daily living activities, things that you're doing every single day. I was like, posture's pretty good. And I was like, what am I doing every day that could be messing this up? And then I was like, breathing. I'm breathing every day, but I'm not paying attention to how I'm breathing, right? So I started taking a big, deep, it's called a diaphragmatic breath, where like you put your hands on your ribs and you breathe out. You try to expand your rib cage, you breathe into your back, you breathe into your belly. And I did that. And all of a sudden I felt it stretch from like my upper chest all the way up my neck into my head. It stretched all those muscles when I started breathing down deep. And I let a big exhale out and I kept doing that for a little while and my headache started to go away. So I was like, what is going on? The physiological structures had changed. The muscles had shortened and gotten tight because I was doing improper breathing, which then triggered a nervous system response into fight or flight. So the actual mechanical process of me breathing is what was causing my headaches. Totally. That's all it was. I mean, that's the only thing I changed and the headaches are gone. It's been over a year now and I don't have them anymore. And if I do have them, I know it's because I'm not paying attention to how I'm breathing. Or I'm in high stress. Like when we moved, yeah, I wasn't paying attention to how I was breathing. Right. So I woke up with a headache and I was like, well, I know exactly what it is. So I breathe. I started stretching the muscles that were tight, anterior delts, the shoulders, the fronts of the shoulders, the pecs get really tight, traps get tight. Because a lot of times when people take a breath, they take a big breath in and it goes up into their chest. Mm -hmm. They don't do anything with the, the belly and the ribs don't move. You don't feel anything in the back. Really where I start with people is the mechanics. Because for mm -hmm. me, when I changed the mechanics, everything changed. And the yeah. mechanics of breathing, people don't know how to do that. So that is where I start with everybody is we do either a visual assessment or a hands-on assessment with how they're actually breathing. And mm. I take a different approach based on the person when they come in. If there's somebody who is like me, really hyper, like a ball of energy, high stress, go, go, go. We're going to do breath work that downregulates your nervous system, right? Mm. If somebody's really lethargic and tired and they feel like they don't have any energy, we're going to do breath work that will upregulate your nervous system and give you more energy. So I always start with the person. So it's not like uh, one size fits all. Uh, everybody can do breath work, but it just depends on what the person needs. And it shifts, right? Sometimes people need both. But I always start with the mechanics and I get people to feel, actually physically feel what it's like to take a deep diaphragmatic breath. So you're using your diaphragm to breathe versus all the muscles of your chest and neck, which is how I was breathing forever. You mm -hmm. use these muscles, they start to get tight. Because your lungs have to expand when you take a breath in. So things have to move, right? And if you're not using your diaphragm, which pushes down, when you take a breath in, it goes down to expand the lungs. If you're not really using that, it still moves, right? But you're doing more of this. So all this mm -hmm. gets tight. It gets fatigued. It gets tired. It's just a pattern that you've built. So I teach people to actually do that so they can actually feel what it, it feels like to breathe. And most of the time, even after we just do 10 to 20 breaths of a deep diaphragmatic breath, they go, oh, I feel way better. Like I already feel way better. Whatever they were feeling, they feel better. If they were down or up or whatever they need, they feel better after they learn how to do that simple breath work. And then based on the symptoms that they told me that they've had, like somebody comes in and they are stressed out. They have a lot of burnout. They're, they're really anxious. I typically go, the, the easiest one for people to get, I call it four, six, eight breathing. Mm -hmm. You breathe in through the nose for four seconds, right? Using the belly to drive the breath. You hold and retain the breath at the top for six seconds. 
and then you can exhale through the nose or the mouth. I prefer the mouth when I'm teaching somebody new so they because they don't have a lot of muscular control over the mm -hmm. diaphragm and over the respiratory muscles. Eight second exhale. So four, six, eight. And we just repeat that. And we'll do that for it depends on the person. Three minutes to I've done 15 minutes with somebody wow. just sitting and having them breathe. And I sit down with them and I show them what it looks like. And we just do it together for 10 to 15 minutes. And that will down regulate your nervous system. I'm a terrible sleeper, actually. Mm -hmm. I have a really hard time falling asleep. And that is the breath uh, pattern that I use when I'm laying in bed and I'll fall asleep in two minutes now. It's like, mm. it's crazy how good it works. The breath controls everything. Mm. So a lot of people are over breathing, breathing too many times in a day, breathing too shallow. They're not paying attention to it, which then signals to your body that we're in a state of stress, right? And then mm -hmm. the cascading physiological and psychological effect of that then happens. But it's literally the breath that's causing that. So taking back control of the breath is what will regulate your nervous system. Yeah. That is wild. Okay. Two, two questions. A, I feel like you've just like given just enough to make me go, how do I learn everything about this? <laughs> so that's my first question. And the second question is more like thinking about breath in a competitive state, because I think about that a lot. Like in horse sports, you've got people that myself included, obviously there's a certain amount of fear and nerves and stress, which like you had said earlier, some of it is really helpful. It makes you brave. It makes you ready. It makes you focus. And then some of it, you're like, I can't feel this way a second longer because I'm going to die. <laughs> so figuring out breath patterns that calm you enough, but also keep you hyper-focused. Do, do you know what I'm saying? So that mm -hmm. in certain situations, you wouldn't really want to calm yourself totally down where you're just in a rest state if you've got to perform. Right. 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 Exactly. Um, the thing I hear talked about a lot in the breath world is like always nasal breathing. Right. And I, I don't know if you've seen it, but lately I've been seeing articles where people in competition are taping their mouth shut. Right. Mm. While like in a tennis match, it was a tennis player that had done this recently. There is a time and place for every tool. You don't want to use a screwdriver when you need a hammer, right? It won't work well. Yeah. And the breath is a tool just like every other tool. And there are states. There's CO2 buildup that you have to offload CO2 if you're in competition and you, you have an increased respiratory rate. You're doing something that is highly physically intensive. You're building up a lot of CO2. And you have to be able to offload that. And the most efficient way to offload that is through your mouth, right? Mouth breathing. When the demand requires it, you use it. That's like how I would explain it. So you cannot nasal breathe for a max effort sprint. You know, if you're doing 10 rounds of a max effort sprint, you cannot nasal breathe. You like will not get enough oxygen. That is not the time to do nasal breathing, right? The demand of the activity requires that you're going to do some mouth breathing. So like pre-performance stuff, um, there's one that, so the course that I took, it's uh, XPT, Extreme Performance Training. It's the uh, performance breathwork certification course. It's all online. Um, and that's how I got hooked up with PJ, actually. And he works with Laird Hamilton and Gabby Reese. Uh, Laird Hamilton is the big wave surfer. And they started the company. So in that, there is a thing called triangle breathing. So there's box breathing, which um, you may have heard of. So that's the same breath count. So in for four, hold for four, out for four, hold for four. Triangle is just one step less. So like, in for four, hold for four, out for four, in for four. And what that does is it gets you focused and centered and instead of like you're not actually down-regulating your nervous system that much because it's not these big long holds. 
the longer you get into a breath hold or an inhale or an exhale, like a really long exhale is what's going to downregulate your nervous system. And you can be too calm pre-performance, right? Like you said, you don't want to be so relaxed that you start prepared for competition, right? That is too far one way. So I really like like the triangle breathing is really useful to just get people aware of their breath, get them to focus on something else other than the nerves and the anxiety and the potential faults that they're going to make or could make or what's going to go wrong or there's so much pressure on me. You just focus on the breath, just in for three or four, five, whatever's comfortable, right? In, hold, out, in, hold, out. That gets you, gets your, your uh, respiratory muscles and the actual mechanical process of breathing. You're paying attention to that. That's getting you mentally focused and prepared, and it's taking your attention and putting it on something useful versus what could go wrong. So the triangle breathing is one that I really like pre-performance. I also do that kind of like before a workout even, just to kind of get everything warmed up and ready to go so I am breathing efficiently uh, during you know a workout or even a competition. That's so interesting. This thing called time. <laughs> you heard of it? <laughs> For for those listening and myself, how how do we, A, what are some common things that people can do to feel like they have more of it or that they're optimizing it? And when you're kind of looking at your week, A, how do you plan your week? And B, obviously kind of living a healthier, more balanced lifestyle isn't going to happen without some pre-planning whether it's planning your, your evening routine or your dietary needs or, or whatnot. How, what are some, I know you're not a fan of quick fixes, so I'm not going to say that, but what are some of like advice that you give people to really go, okay, we need to learn a little bit more about breathing. We've got to bring in some nutrition. Some time in the gym is probably a good idea. Like, how do you, how do you not overwhelm somebody listening? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I would say, honestly, the first thing, if somebody feels like they don't have time, I would make somebody write me out a detailed like schedule of what they're doing with their day. I want to know in 15-minute blocks what you're doing with your time, mm-hmm. right? Like, can you show me that? Mm-hmm. And if you can't, that's maybe a place to start, right? And then the other side of that is like, so once we actually look at what you're doing in a day and don't change, don't change what you're doing. That's what everybody tries to do. Like if I have somebody do a food journal, they change and they write what I (laughs) think I want to see. And I'm like, I know you're lying because you don't look like you eat like this. So getting them to actually figure out what they're doing with their time. And then the second part of that is presence. I hear a lot about like a work-life balance and this and that. It's like maybe you only do have two hours with your kids at home at the end of the day. What are you doing in those two hours? Are you totally present? Are you totally aware? Are you really involved? Or are you still trying to send emails? Are you still on your phone? Are you looking at social media? Are you trying to watch TV? Like how present are you with the downtime that you have? That alone will make you feel like you have more time because you're more intentional about how you're actually spending your time. And that's something I've had to work on myself. Especially when I first started the business, it was like emails, phone calls, marketing, this and that. What do I got to set up? I got to do this. I got to make this call. I got to get this meeting done. And I was doing that all after work, after I was done with clients. And I, w- I felt like I was never home. I'm like, well, I'm not home. Physically, I'm here, but mentally, I'm somewhere else. So when I switched it to like, when I'm home, I'm home. And I'm going to be really present. And, you know, maybe you only have 10 minutes throughout the day sometimes where you could have a 10-minute break 
instead of getting on social media, maybe you would sit down and do some breath work, right? I would not say, you know, in lieu of like, I need to do breath work instead of working out. If you're missing workouts to do breath work, you're missing the point, right? Maybe you do three minutes of breath work before you do your workout type of thing. Like start really small. That's how I would not overwhelm somebody is meet them where they're at. What are they capable of right now? What skills do they have? Are, on my end as a coach, I need to know like, okay, I can see where you are skill-wise. I see the skills that we need to build up. This is how we're going to do it one step at a time. So I always go back to that scale of zero to 10. How ready and willing and able are you to do this action? I'll give you an example of if somebody's trying to change their diet, right? And cooking at home would be a great option for them. Obviously, cooking at home, you know what's in the food. You're able to control what you're eating a little bit more. But a lot of people that I work with never cook at home. They don't even have their kitchen set up. So I would go through with them, like, what are some other options that we could do? What is anything that we could do? Is it maybe we start to get the kitchen organized? Maybe that's step one. I just meet them where they're at, not where I want them to be or where they want to be because they're not there yet. And I learned this the hard way by overwhelming people too many times. But I just meet them where they're at and say, okay, maybe it's a, we look into a meal delivery service, right? Maybe you get two meals a week where you do cook those at home, but you don't have to go grocery shopping because you don't have any time. So let's get some meals delivered to you, okay? Or, hey, let's look at maybe adding a protein shake in. You're not getting any protein in your day. You're starting to work out. You don't feel good to recover. Let's add a protein shake in. How easy is that? Like, can you, do you feel like you can do that? And we start with that. And then all of a sudden, after they do that for a while, it's like, okay, well now, do you feel a little bit better? Like, yeah, I do. Did that take a ton of time? No. And now they're thinking about how much protein do they have in a day, which is my ultimate goal to get people to a place where they can recover. You know, they're going to feel satiated. They're not so hungry. But you, I can't have them do everything at once. So it's like start small. Start with one thing that you know you can do now. Nail that for a week, right? Or two weeks even. Don't, don't push it. If you're already stressed and you have no time, start small. So like with a workout, yeah, I don't want to drive to the gym. I don't need to do an hour workout. Maybe you wake up and you do three sets of 10 squats, three sets of 10 push-ups. Maybe you hold a plank for a little bit and you do three minutes of breath work. Like before you start your day, right? You get out of bed and you just do it. Yes, it's uncomfortable to get up 10 minutes earlier. Yes, you don't want to do that right away when you wake up. But how's that working for you? Do you want to stay where you are right now? But you start small and you build into it. Don't feel like you have to change everything at once. That's how I would say don't overwhelm people because everybody wants to change everything at once and that almost never works. I mean, there are specific situations like I just did 75 hard. That's a complete life upside down turner thing. Like it, it's crazy, but I'm a psycho and I like doing that type of stuff. Not everybody likes doing that. So find what works for you is what I would say. And if you already feel like you don't have time, find the easiest thing that you can do, work it into somewhere that's not taking away work or family time. And usually that's in the morning or maybe that's after the kids go to bed, but find something small and work it into your routine. That's how I would start. Yeah, it's super interesting. I think on one of the first podcasts, I think you and Dakota were talking about something and you, you or he said, it's amazing people overestimate what they can do in a year and underestimate what they can do in five. And I thought that was so powerful because it's so true. And, and even less, cause you think I've been doing this for three months and there's not, I can't sustain this massive 10 things I've changed for three months. But if you kind of look at it over a longer, it's amazing what you can get done in a slightly longer period of time. 
And that is, that is so cool what you said about the 15 minute blocks, because I find that I go from very early to very late and it, but when I pay attention, the amount of 10 to 15 minute blocks I waste thinking I only have 10 or 15 minutes, I can't really get anything done. And then I end up, I don't know what I end up doing for that amount of time. But in a day, there's probably like six of those blocks. And it'll be funny because it'll be like, I'll be running back down to do something. And I'm like, oh man, I could have done like a three minute meditation. I could have just like, but it didn't cross my mind. Like I have to write like index cards to remind myself to do that because it's definitely not the first thing that I'm to do in those blocks of time. But I remember even reading in Atomic Habits, like writing out, like from the moment you wake up till like, this is what I do. I get up, I brush my teeth, I wash my face, I step on the scale, I do this thing. Like there's these chunks that you can kind of figure out how to navigate different parts in your day to give you more time. I thought that that would just be like a really good practice for, I'm going to do that. And it'd be a really good practice for everybody listening to just, I mean, it's a little bit tedious to write that out, but I bet there's a lot of time in there. Uh, I mean, always we're humans, right? So like we, we just, we have chunks of time, right. Mm -hmm. That we are losing on a regular Mm -hmm. basis. And I had to do this. I had to go through, it was uh, high performance habits was the book that I read by Brendan Burchard. Mm -hmm. And uh, he talked about being like ruthless. Oh, there's my daughter. I can see her in the back there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You have to be ruthless with your schedule. And he's like, if you can't show me every 15 minute block what you're doing for an entire day and you tell me you have no time i don't believe you like i can't mm-hmm. believe you until you show me that you don't have any time and right i, I was listening to uh alex hormozzi he's like a business guru guy and he was talking about how he sets up his schedule i haven't done this yet but he was like i backfill my schedule so i have a cutoff time at the end of the day that i don't want to work past instead of saying I'm open at one to four 30 or whatever. And they start scheduling him at one. And then he has a break from whatever, like four to six before he has to go do anything. He's like, schedule my last one at the end of the day and work backwards a couple. So then I have a big chunk of time in the beginning of the day to get all my stuff done Mm -hmm. that I want to do. And you have to be self-disciplined in order to do that. Right? Like I'm going to meditate. I'm going to work out. I'm going to do my deep work. I'm going to get all of the projects done and all the emails that I need to get done early in the day. But I thought that was kind of interesting how he's like, mm-hmm. I'm going to backfill my schedule. So he has a big chunk of time to get the stuff done. So it's not broken up into 10 or 15 minute increments in between clients or sessions or lessons, which is hard to do. Like my profession, it was, I couldn't do that. I had mm-hmm. people that came in before work and they wanted to come in after work and it was kind of throughout the day. And I did have like a 10 or 15 minute, maybe 30 minute chunk here and there. It's hard to like write a script for a podcast and do all the prep work in 15 minutes. I can't quite mm-hmm. do that. But I could probably do some breath work or do some stretching like to manage my headaches. Like I could have mm-hmm. done some stretching. I just never did it. I just sat and looked at Instagram until my next client came in, right? Mm-hmm. So it's just being aware of like how you're actually spending your time, like being ruthless with the schedule. And that's not something you have to do forever, but it, it can provide a lot of insight, I think. Mm, yeah, that's awesome. I'm going to do that. Okay, I'm going to move into these questions because I've had you on here for a whole hour and I saw your little girl there and she looks like she wants some dad time. (laughs) Okay, what is the biggest lesson you're, I'm not going to use personal training, that your journey has taught you? (laughs) It's probably a couple things. Uh, The main thing really is like you have to connect with people. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. I think it doesn't matter what you're trying to get done. If you don't connect with people, you're not going to get anywhere. So 
being able to meet people where they're at and like developing the skill of listening. That is the biggest thing that I learned. I thought when I first started in health, it was like, I'm just going to tell people what to do and they're going to do it, right? Like it's going to be easy. I know what I, I know what they need to do. I'm just going to tell them to do it. I actually had such bad experiences with people when I first started. I actually stopped doing, I, did, I wouldn't talk nutrition with people for like six months after I started because I was like, I don't know what is happening. Like, I cannot believe these people are not doing what I'm saying. And I realized, oh, I have to listen. I actually have to listen to what they're telling me and figure out where they are and what blocks they have and, and what they're worried about. So I'd say that's what it is. Like, make sure you connect with people. You can actually truly connect with people in a real way from the heart. Like, not what's in it for me. It's how can I help them by connecting with them and then listening. That's the two biggest things I've learned. That's so interesting that you say that because, you know, your first reaction when you say it's you've got to connect with people. For me, my first thought is, yeah, I have to talk to people. And when then when you say, no, you just have to listen, it's like a load off. No, but it's incredible. Like when I first started doing these podcasts, I'd get so worked up because I'm like, what if I run out of things to say? And then just on the top of the paper, I wrote, it's not about me. Like it was just like you just asked a question like it's that's it and most of the time people are happy to talk but it's it's uh that's it's I love that and you said that in the beginning too it's like just why and then shut up yep (laughs) what a relief I (laughs) it's easy just ask why stop talking (laughs) do you have a favorite training or teaching mantra you reference regularly yeah I always tell people we're playing the long game here the long game, and I always refer back to capacity and whatever that means for them. So I'm trying to increase your capacity to live a better life, right? And we're playing the long game. So many people come in and they see the fancy stuff on Instagram or, hey, I heard this this uh, ingredient in food is going to kill me or I need to do all of these 15 habits every single day. I need to work out seven times a week, uh, maybe even twice a day sometimes. I have to drink six gallons of water. Like, no. You don't have to do that. We're playing the long game. We're like, well, when are we going to start doing this exercise? Or when are we going to start uh, getting into this type of breath work? Like, well, you don't even know how to breathe yet. So let's build on the basics and we'll go from there. We're playing the long game. We will get to that stuff. But high performance starts with human performance, right? And human performance is nailing the basics. That's what people miss. Like, it's not that different. All the people at the highest level are doing the basics really, really well, almost unconsciously, most likely at that point but they're doing the basics, but people see the high performance stuff and that's what they want to do. And they want to skip the basics. So we're playing the long game. That's always what I tell them. Like, just get consistent at the basics and that will lead you to the result that you want. That is awesome. High performance is in human performance. I love that. But that too, when I was thinking about chatting with you today, you know, like there's always this balance if you're in sport or in work, like in high performance job, your your goals are your result. You know, like you're kind of looking at these results all the time and it doesn't feel, you know, like I guess in that statement, it is really kind of saying like, be here, be now. And we'll do, that'll come later, you know, like being more present. Yeah, the process, right? Love the yeah. process. Yeah. That's yeah. like how I look at it. And if you love the process, you love doing the little things and you fall in love with the actual process. Mm-hmm. That's how you get the outcome. If you focus so much on the outcome, so much can go wrong and you're missing the day-to-day stuff. 
I think Dave Wood talked about, I think I heard you guys talk about that too. Like, don't be so worried about what the result is. Like mm -hmm. focus more on the process, on the steps. And that's, what's going to like lead you down the path. And that's how you learn too, right? Yeah. If you only focus on the outcome, you don't know anything that you did leading up to it, or you weren't paying attention or kind of mindless about it. How do you learn? That's always what I say. Like failure is the best way to learn. Learn a lot winning by accident, or it's at least not sustainable, right? Mm -hmm. So nailing the process, I think, is important. Well, and I think believing that, I mean, it's easy like to say it, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But believing that the basics do create high performance, like the basics are like legit. It's not doing all these hard things. It's doing this, the simple, doing things simply well is not easy. Like that's the hardest part, you know, yep. and it leads to the big thing. So it's, I think people truly, truly believing that and hearing it over and over and telling yourself it over and over as well. Um, is there a piece of advice someone gave you along the way you still reference today? Yes, really. I don't know. I don't know where I got it from. I was in a float tank. It's like a sensory deprivation tank. You know, it's full of salt water. It's the same yeah. temperature as your skin. And uh, I was going through some stuff, like some really stressful stuff, and I decided I was going to go do a float tank to kind of just like calm down and maybe try to like organize my mind a little bit better. And I was floating in the float tank, and all of a sudden, I heard this loud voice say, let go of control. And I was like, okay, yeah, okay, I will. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it was my mind. Maybe it was literally God. Maybe it was. I don't know what it was, but I heard it. And then it went into this big, like it was a visual experience, basically like a journey. It showed me my daughters and then it showed me uh, going through the life and then it showed me their wedding. And it was like, you get to be at their wedding, but you could miss everything in between now and then if you're not present and if you don't let go of control and you don't stop being so stressed. Do you want to be remembered as a psychopath who's always stressed out from work for no apparent reason, these arbitrary goals you've set for yourself? Do you want to be stressed out and negative and angry all the time? Or do you want to be remembered as a present loving father and husband? And it like showed me all of that. And I was like, whoa, and this was years ago. And uh, so that is actually, I don't know where that advice came from. I don't know if it was something inside of me already or if it was external, but like to let go of control is the one that I have to remind myself of a lot because I try to control everything. And that leads me to being stressed and burnt out. So I try to let go of control. I wonder if we'll get an email of the guy that was standing outside the float tank. <laughs> it was me. Let go. <laughs> I was there. That's <laughs> uh, so hard to do, though. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> it does help having kids, though, because that it, it helps and it makes it it makes it more in, maybe a important or maybe more aware. I don't want to take that away from people that don't, but you become like what type of parent do I want to be? Like, mm -hmm. if, it's not just you anymore. Mirror. Yeah. Like if yeah. you have other people depending on you, you have minds and lives that you're shaping from mm -hmm. the beginning. And if you're any type of person who cares about other people, you take that into account. Like that, mm -hmm. that's a lot of pressure. It can be a lot of pressure, but it's also a real blessing too. Mm -hmm. But it's not just you anymore. It's mm -hmm. like me and my kids, me and my family. And some people are going to crumble under that and some people are going to rise to the challenge. And I think we're the type of people that are like, what kind of parent do I want to be? Mm -hmm. I want to be one that I would think I would be proud of. That's how mm -hmm. I look at it. So it is, it's a big change. I, I do. I cannot remember 
because it was right when I started listening. I cannot remember who you were speaking to, but it was a really interesting statement. And I think it was something along the lines of would I want my child to grow up and be like me? Mm. And it was like a huge like, whoa, because if you're like, no, then, you know, you've got some work to do, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's obviously aspects and things that you want to be original or, or authentic to them or unique to them. But if you're like, absolutely not, then it's like a real interesting uh, reflection to to see where you you know how you want to keep operating your day because they're mirroring everything that we do and we, we find that a lot with the horses and is that they're just mirroring the energy that you're putting out so if they're being a certain way like it's there's no better feedback right there it's really it's really interesting that's awesome horses are wild I've, I've I went and uh, rode Allison's a couple times oh, did you? Of, yeah yeah because you know she was telling me like about eventing you know mm -hmm. dressage and the cross country and I was like, what is it? So I had, she was videoing it and she would send me the videos and I would go out and like, just kind of like watch what they were doing. And then she got me on the horses and I'm like, not comfortable with horses. I just had never done it before, you know? And I was like, this is what they're like, it react, they react to you. They are how you are. If you are stressed and tight and, and fearful, they feel that they know how you're riding. And I'm like, how, how does a horse know that? But they totally do. So I get the immediate feedback thing for sure. Like if you're tense and tight and you're not doing it right, like they will tell you that right away. And that right there is like an assessment, right? That's taking inventory. Like what's the horse doing? Okay. What am I doing? Mm -hmm. All right. Let's change it and, and reevaluate. Like that's an assessment tool, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The feedback is if you're, if you're paying attention, the feedback is real and honest. I mean, that's a running joke here. You know, you'll have somebody that say, I just wish they could talk. And I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> you don't want to know what they have to say right now it's pretty obvious they're telling you <laughs> what do you do when you are seeking inspiration well i've changed it before it was always like i need to listen to a navy seals podcast or i need to watch the videos of a dude running a hundred mile ultra marathon and like go i'm gonna i'm gonna be ready to run through a brick wall right i'm already most of the time ready to do that stuff. So I've, I've switched it over the last probably like year, I guess, maybe even less, honestly. It's getting quiet. It's getting outside. It's getting my bare feet on the ground, like actually getting grounded. There's just something that happens when you put your bare feet on the ground. You just feel more connected. You feel a little bit slower. I don't take the phone outside. I don't take the computer outside. I literally just go sit outside or I just pay attention to my breath. I look, I stare at a tree. I listen to the birds. And I just get calm. And that helps me come from a, a place of like my true center on the decision that I'm trying to make. So if it's like, okay, I'm ready to take on this big challenge or go this way. Is it actually the right thing to do right now? Do I need to start this program? Do I need to let this thing go? Do I need to cut this part out of my life? I go sit and I get quiet. And that allows me the clarity to be confident in my decision. And for me, that's like, a little bit better than like inspiration even i get inspiration everywhere i'm constantly looking at uh reading books and and listening to podcasts of people that are doing great things so it's like i have that like on a running loop in my head already so for me it's like i just get quiet and calm and centered and that allows me to move forward with whatever decision i'm going to make without any doubt and that was mm -hmm. the biggest thing i struggled with before was like the doubt and uh, paralysis by analysis <laughs> yeah yeah, that's interesting. I like in those I, I think that type of time too helps assess 
like what type of momentum you're in, because I know for me, sometimes I don't realize that I'm going a hundred miles an hour because that mm -hmm. feels like neutral. I feel like this is, this is where I'm at. And yeah. until you kind of stop and go for a walk or sit in nature for a second, you didn't, you don't even realize that you were at that speed. You know? And like you said, even trying to make decisions at that speed might not be the most logical. Right. I mean, you have to do it, right? Sometimes, mm -hmm. especially in a high-stress environment, high-performance stuff, you have to get good at doing that. But like, I think, like we talked about earlier, it's finding that balance of just knowing when you need to take that time. Mm -hmm. And sometimes just working that time into your schedule, you might not even know that you need that time, but you've, okay, Wednesdays at 6 a.m., I go outside and I sit for 30 minutes. I don't do anything. I just get present. And that's just part of your routine. And sometimes that can be enough to break the cycle of like, I'm just going, 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 going. Like I'm, I'm spinning my wheels here and I didn't even recognize why I was spinning my wheels or why I felt that way. Mm -hmm. And it'll just give you the space, like just create some space mentally to figure out where you're at. Mm -hmm. So like, I like to just make it a habit, right? Mm -hmm. It's so funny that to get more time, you actually have to just stop. <laughs> yeah. It's so counterintuitive. Yeah. Have you had an experience or adversity separate from your from your job in life that has influenced you uh, in your profession? Uh, yeah, big time. It was uh, losing my mom as you know a fifteen year old. It was like that just showed me that life is impermanent. It's going to end. Like I got the surprise, not so surprise ending really early on. Like I figured out really early on that we're all going to die, right? That's the surprise ending. That's not such a surprise. And it just shifted my perspective to like, huh, I don't want to spend my time that I do have doing things I don't want to do or not contributing to the betterment of the human race. Uh, that sounds mm -hmm. like a lofty goal or whatever, but I want to do something meaningful to me that helps other people. And I figured that out at a really early age from that traumatic event. And I recognize that the way that I'm going to do that is through health like mm -hmm. through improving people's health, their mental health, their physical health, emotional health. And that has shaped my entire life. That happening shaped my entire life. It was a terrible experience. It was very traumatic, but like I overcame that. And now looking back, I wouldn't change it. You know, I mm -hmm. wouldn't change that thing that happened to me because it showed me who I was, who I could be. It taught me how to deal with adversity. It taught me how to deal with discomfort and be able to use those things to our advantage. That's mm -hmm. like the biggest thing that shaped me was like, if anything happens, like the gym, the gym uh, lease fell apart the day it was supposed to happen. I was like, okay, uh, how do I use this to my advantage? How is this mm -hmm. good for me? Turns out the, the people who own the building were insane. And it was like a blessing that I didn't get into business with them. It worked mm -hmm. out great. And the new landlord was like, it was a perfect spot and they were super open and easy to work with and it made my life really easy and the other way would have been a nightmare and i saw that coming but i thought i didn't have another option so i ignored it right mm -hmm. and it would have been terrible but now i can just say when something bad happens like how can i use this to my advantage or how is how is there a blessing in this so yeah losing my mom is actually the thing that probably has shaped my life in the most positive way which mm -hmm. sounds crazy to say <laughs> well most things <laughs> What, you know, you, you spend a lot of your time around very high performance people and are, are a high performance person yourself. Is that, is there something in the, 
Yeah, I mean, I guess it goes back to like nature or nurture. Like, is there something in there that you feel like there's a genetic thing that makes some people able to handle and move on? Or is it um, is it totally mindset? Is it totally learned? It, is there a common theme throughout there that you've seen amongst people that you've spent time with? Yeah, I've seen I've seen both for sure. And it's it's definitely it's not like an either or it's it's definitely both. Some people are naturally just better at dealing with it. They just yeah. have. They're just born with the tools to be able to be un, uh, unstressed, I guess would be the term, or unfazed by mm-hmm. these things. They just recognize, like, I'm going to move on. Oh, she's licking the window, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, if we could all just have that. <laughs> Don't do that. Stop doing that. <laughs> oh, well, that's how that's going to end, I guess. It's a perfect uh, example of how we should be. Just having fun, right? Just having fun. You know, that's four. We should all revisit our four and five-year-old. Yeah, they just live life. Yeah, but I've seen seen it with both. But even the people that are naturally good at it can get better at it, right? Mm. By developing the right tools and skills necessary to deal with that stuff. By teaching them like the five-step method, even something simple like that. Or just a breath. Like just Mm. pay attention to how you're breathing or where you're holding tension. So even the people that naturally deal with it better can get better at it. (laughs) It just can't taste good. <laughs> uh, it cannot taste good. That's a window with cleaner on it. That it's a window that's going to need some cleaner on it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think this is a perfect thought. <laughs> She's not scared of you. No, that's not good. at all. <laughs> yeah. She knows. <laughs> well, I think that is a perfect place to wrap it up. This has been hugely inspiring for, for myself and I'm sure for a lot of our listeners. And where can we kind of, reconnect follow up with you i know that you kind of closed down some business and now you're in florida so how do we how do we get more of you (laughs) yeah so the get uncomfortable show the get uncomfortable podcast is just get uncomfortable on uh everywhere you get podcasts spotify apple uh iHeartRadio, amazon whatever that's the biggest one that's probably where i'm going to be like the most active now um i also have an instagram account it's at enlightened athlete that was the original name of the business. I'm thinking of changing it to actually just get uncomfortable. But those two places are probably where you can find me the most, the podcast and the Instagram right now. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I hope you are settling into Florida well and uh, go play with your kids. Yes. Thank you so much for having me on. This was awesome. I, I really enjoyed it. Me too. All right. Thanks so much, Jay. Yeah. Thank you. Before you go, I just want to let you know more about Ride IQ. At its core, Ride IQ gives everyone access to instruction from the best equestrian coaches in the world. It might sound impossible, but with Ride IQ, you get access to the private mobile app that has hundreds of on-demand, listen-while-you-ride audio lessons taught by top riders and coaches in eventing, hunter jumpers, and dressage. Here's how it works. You look through the app and choose a lesson based on your horse or a skill you're working on. There are lessons for green off-the-track thoroughbreds and nervous horses horses and horses that are behind the leg, as well as lessons that teach every stage of skills like shoulder in or trot lengthenings. Then you tack up and press play and you have a top coach like Doug Payne or Leslie Law or Gina Smith in your ear guiding you every step of the way. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, it is always appreciated if you can take a moment to share the podcast with your friends and family and leave a review on your podcast app. The best way to support the podcast is to become a Ride IQ member at ride-iq.com. And when you do, we hope you're excited to see that In Stride is just one of multiple podcast shows on the app, including hack chats, conversations with coaches, and more. 